This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart of the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I am your host, Sabrina Ferminger, and today I am delighted to welcome one of my favorite documentary filmmakers to the podcast, Mr. Charles Wilkinson. Okay, Charles, this is the point where I'm going to make the thesis statement, okay? You ready? Okay. (laughs) Charles' documentaries are beautifully constructed and often read like novels with fully formed characters, stunning locales, and even distinct chapters. He's the filmmaker behind Oil Sands Karaoke, about a karaoke competition in an oil patch, as well as, well as Haida Gwaii on the Edge of the World and Vancouver No Fixed Address, one of which explored how the Haida people are rallying to protect their home, and one that laid bare the challenges of trying to build community in a city more concerned with development than people. Charles's works are accessible, but not simple. They linger, and his latest work, Haida Modern, very much falls into that category. On the surface, Haida Modern tells the story of famed Haida artist Robert Davidson. But it's also a document about reclaiming culture after it's been nearly decimated by colonization. It's about family and legacy and how First Nations art is a living, breathing organism that continues to grow and evolve and stay modern. Haida Modern will soon air on the Knowledge Network and will also be streaming online. And before it does, I am delighted to speak with Charles today. So, Charles Wilkinson, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you, Sabrina. Thanks for having me. Okay, first question. What did you think of my thesis statement? It was very flattering. Thank you. But it was also really... It was really thoughtful, and I appreciate that you see those things because we work hard on that. Yeah, and when you say we, I mean, we're talking about yourself. We're talking about Tina, who I know is your collaborator on many things. Uh, Tina Schleiser? Schleisler. Schleisler. I'm sorry, I can't speak this morning. And also a friend of the podcast and previous guest, Mr. Kevin Eastwood. Kevin Eastwood, yeah, he works so hard on our work, yeah. Absolutely, he does. So let's go back in time then and talk about the the starting point for this film. What was the inspiration for Haida Modern? It's uh, a number of things inspired it. One is my pretty much lifelong admiration for Robert's work. 
Mm. Um, Tina as well is is a visual artist, and she's followed Robert's work, and she's almost a Robert groupie, I think, um, <laughs> as is Kevin. And uh, uh, but much more recently, we met Robert when we were filming the Hadequai on the Edge of the World film, mm. and we actually filmed and interviewed his son Ben in his studio. And uh, I think we were all a little bit awestruck. Robert was sort of pottering or puttering around in the background and he said here should go ahead film some of my work because we did and use it which was great and he just was such a, a, a gentleman and such a cool guy I mean he just has this aura around him and so you know we've worked on these inter these environmental pictures and also movies and stories about place and as we were working on the Vancouver show we noticed that there's so much indigenous art in in Vancouver it's mm. just every look and a great deal of it is Roberts and so um, when when we were thinking about the the value of place in the context of this home of ours of uh, Vancouver um, it seemed that there was something to be said something to be learned from Robert and how his work has been so closely tied up with protecting Haida Kwai, but also protecting the environment in general. So it led to conversations and um, you know we sat down with Robert and asked him if he'd like to to have a movie and he thought about it for a while and he said, yeah, I think so. And so uh, he basically chose us to tell his story, which is a huge honor. Oh, that's, I'm glad he said yes. Wow. Yeah. Like, I'm very grateful. Um, how closely does the final film match your original concept for the film? That's a really good question. Um, and it's always really easy to say, oh, this is exactly what I imagined. Hmm. Um but this is exactly what I imagined. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, you meet Robert and you talk with him for, for five minutes or listen to him for five minutes, and, and that's the sense you get of him. And Robert, I must say, has said that he thinks that the film ca captures him and his work really accurately, mm. which is, I think, again, a really huge compliment. Um, when you get an idea for a movie, you rarely get uh, an idea that includes every scene and every shot, especially yeah. in documentary. But the essence of it is exactly what I was hoping for, that what Robert, the meaning behind his work and the passion that he brings to it, that was what Tina and I struggled and, and Kevin as well struggled to find and find a way to express. And, yeah. you know, I'm not sure that, I mean, it's obviously not perfect by a long stretch of the imagination, but um, it has Robert's feel to it. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I found very interesting besides getting to know Robert was also getting to know all the people around him. His, you mentioned his son. There's also his daughter who is educating yeah. teachers or, or people in, who are going to be teachers in British Columbia, you know, about, you know, uh, indigenous history, about residential schools, you know. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the impact that Robert has that you as the filmmaker saw that Robert has had on all of these people around him, you know, who are artists or storytellers or activists in their own right? Yeah, um, Robert's message has been consistent throughout his life and throughout the work that he's done. And he constantly refers to the ancient you know, the ancestors that he that he works with. And to him, they're very much alive and they're part of his, his work. Mm. He feels he's bringing forward this wisdom that, that his ancestors have. 
And that's very much the core of his message. And that's had an enormous influence on everyone around him through his work and also through the, the things that he says. I mean, to bring it into the present day context, because, you know, we could be talking about somebody who paints pretty pictures. Yeah. Um, and that, the Robert's pictures are unbelievably beautiful, but that's not what he does. What he, what he does, everything is, is suffused with this meaning. And to bring it into present day context, he believes that, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I mean, you watch the movie and these are his words, that the natural world, we have taken an approach to it, we, meaning Western culture, has taken an approach to the natural world, which is 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 dangerous and wrong-headed. And right now we're in the midst of a, of a, of a crisis, a pandemic, mm-hmm. that's been caused specifically by our exploitation and, and, and absolute um, rape of the natural world. Uh, and, and Robert's view from the, the wisdom of the ancestors that, that, that he's so worked with is that we are just a part of the natural world. We're not the boss of the natural world. And that, that's something that struck me dealing mm-hmm. with indigenous uh, thought patterns all my life is that in in the the Christian Bible it's the God gives Adam the, the the right to be to hold dominion over all things that crawl on the earth that swim in the sea and that fly through the air we're the boss well indigenous societies and I'm lumping them all together and I don't mean to do that but yeah. they generally don't take the point of view that we're the boss of everything we're part of the natural world but we're, we don't own it we, yeah. we, we have an obligation to be responsible members of the natural world. Well, clearly, Western society hasn't done that. And Robert's message has been one that has constantly called us back to that to say, look at the beauty of the natural world, consider ourselves lucky to be part of it, but we have a responsibility to not ruin it. And yeah. we've been violating that responsibility. That's what his work is about. That's what's so attractive to me about it, besides the fact that the images are beautiful, is that I believe what he says to be absolutely true and so important. Yeah. Now, for this film, uh, you had to travel quite a bit, and not just to to you know his studio uh, and in Vancouver, but also you uh, you went to Texas. I think I saw that you went to Alabama. Uh, you went to uh, New York. Tell me about the experience. Was it Alabama? I'm trying to think if no, no, San Francisco, Texas, Alaska, Alaska. I'm embarrassed. I got my. I thought that Al meant Alabama. I'm so embarrassed. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm wondering about the experience uh, that you had observing how people in in those American places viewed the work of Robert Davidson and viewed Robert himself. The, the the New York experience was the was the most striking one. Mm. Uh, Robert was invited. Uh, Robert and Terry Lynn Williams Davidson, his wife, who's a brilliant and talented artist as well as an incredibly smart lawyer, um, they were invited to appear at the Met as part of an event there. And so we went to New York and we observed and filmed, as you'll see in the film, Robert and Terry Lynn at the Met. And it was so interesting because I. Don't know what I was expecting, but I mean, the people who are invited to events like that are like the royalty of yeah. New York. And this, of course, the before the, the pandemic hit. So, I mean, at the event that Robert and Terry Lynn performed at, there's all these people who are like super rich, super connected people, like the patrons of the arts. And they're like 
the biggest patrons of the arts on the planet, right? Yeah. Well, they considered it a big honor to be in the room with Robert and Terry Lynn. But, you know, Robert's performance piece, which you see part of in the film, is he does this dance and this call out, this warning that there are supernatural beings on the edge of town who are approaching and watch out, be careful, it's dangerous, like this. And you can see they're just moving back like people don't normally shout in that space they don't scream and dance around and beat on drums and stuff yeah. so they were like really taking it back and it was it was actually quite an amazing thing to see and then the response was they applauded and it just seemed so <laughs> i thought it was hilarious actually yeah but, I mean, he was people, being disruptive in that space as well and yeah. yeah you know he put on quite so it was really remarkable to see. And of course, in Alaska, he was there to stage a potlatch um, for, he was born in Heidelberg, Alaska, which you can almost see on a clear day from the north end of Haida Gwaii. Um, and so he staged this potlatch to give these gifts of, of indigeneity, I guess, to these clans that had never had visual symbols of their clan. He created them and gave them, and it's worth many thousands of dollars and there were like you know 500 people in this room and food like you've never seen before in your life and it was quite an event how do you think this film i ask you this every time i speak to you after every film you do but how do you think this experience w will change you as a filmmaker and a human moving forward that's a really, really good question. That's really penetrating. And, and I think this film has made uh, at least, well, I would say, more of an impact on me than any of the, the other work that I've done. Really? Robert, That's I so interesting. So, yeah. Well, Robert is, I mean, it's rare that you meet somebody that you look up to as much as I look up to Robert. Hmm. He's such a, a, just a magnetic character, and he's so wise. Um, like, Believe it or not, when I'm in Robert's presence, I tend to shut up. <laughs> yeah, just, you have to listen, right? You just want to, to take listen. it all in. He also doesn't suffer fools, you know. He 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 is very conscious of the value of his time, mm. and so to say, as a, as a filmmaker, that it's necessary to be quite careful um, not to waste his time. Yeah. Um, and not to ask stupid questions. It, you know, I mean, Robert has this thing that he says, and people get a kick out of this because it's a story I tell, that one day when, when Tina and I went to do some filming of him carving on this new totem pole that he's working on, I walked in the door and I said, good morning, Robert, how are you? And he said, you only get two questions today. And I said, <laughs> oh no, was that one of them? He said, yes, and that was the second one. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> then you packed up and you left for the day. Yeah. What else no, are I you mean, to do? <laughs> we become friends, but I think we become friends largely through Tina's uh, uh, machinations. Tina makes lunch and brings it with us whenever we go out to film because we've continued to go out and, and talk to him and film him at his studio because the work that he's doing is, the, I think, the most beautiful work that he's ever done. Mm -hmm. This new totem pole that he's working on that you'll see in the film. Um, but Tina makes lunch and she is an amazing cook and makes some of the most wonderful things and occasionally robert will make lunch for us and he gets a huge kick out of trying to feed us ulican grease have you ever had ulican grease sabrina no i don't think i have it tastes about the way it sounds <laughs> <laughs> which is not like ice cream okay yeah like okay it, it was 
valued trade commodity on the coast. And I read that and I know that, but I just don't know why. Because like, imagine um, anchovy pudding. <laughs> I'm making yeah. a face. Yeah, yeah. But I'm yeah, sure it's very it. filling. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess it's like great. I don't know, but like Robert laughs so much when he, because it's a delicacy, you know, yeah. he gives it to us. We politely will eat like a sort of a little dab of it, but it's like, no, I don't know. Yeah. Is it acquired? Yeah. So anyway, amazing. we make lunch for Robert. And one thing that we famously do is we bring him honey's donuts because we, we, we live in Deep Cove. And he's he'd never had honey's donuts before. And so that was a game changer right there. Oh. So I'd like to put that out to all documentary filmmakers who want to endear themselves to their interview subjects. Honey's Donuts. That's straight from Charles Wilkinson. <laughs> so that's my tip. Yeah, I, it wasn't my tip first. So Kate Winslet, who is now our neighbor, apparently, yeah, um, she, she tweeted that, which caused the traffic in Deep Cove to explode. But there you go. Oh, that's remarkable. And um, is Honey's open right now? I don't know. Actually, I, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if they're if they're doing you know off sales like uh, a takeout. Yeah, I suspect. Probably are because I'm sure that there are people who can't live without their. Yeah, donuts. it's essential. <laughs> yeah, that's an essential service. Come on, let's be real here. So, before COVID nineteen, there was a lot of talk in Canada about the fraught relationship between First Nations and the Canadian government. You know, specifically with what was going on in Wet Sweaten, and then the protests across the country um, and a lot of talk about reconciliation what it means and maybe the next thing we really should be talking about is decolonizing um, what role do you see a film like Haida Modern can play in moving the discussion forward do you think it has a role to play uh, ab absolutely and we're very conscious of that during the making of it because now of course we're in the middle of the pandemic everything is is seen through that lens but you're quite right to say that just prior to the outbreak of the pandemic the big story in canada was indigenous relations and what i see the role of the film as being is is um advancing the discussion away from from the direction of it being this bitter argument where people more on one side than the other, I would say more on the Western side, uh, don't understand the issues, have not really taken the, the time or trouble to find out what they are. Yeah. And so find it really easy to come up with really poorly formed opinions. I thought that, and I still think that the role of, of the of filmmakers in this, particularly, well, no, I was gonna say white filmers, filmmakers, but I think all of us together is to try and expand the knowledge base so that we understand what the issues are, yeah. which is why we included the part about the, the you know, um, the residential schools and the really difficult uh, world that Robert has traveled through. Because I think most people really don't understand, most people in Western people don't understand how what those difficulties in really you know human terms have been but you know Terry Lynn and and Robert both are very very conscious of this issue mm. and Terry Lynn fights it every day being the one of the legal counsels for the Haida Nation she argues in, in front of the courts for their rights and 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 land claims and so forth all the time and they their point of view is that we are all one people mm. that that and, and Terry Lynn says that beautifully in the film, that white, brown, black, we're, we're all one people and that we're living on a, on a, 
a piece of, of land which is, is in trouble and we need to fight together, we need to pull together. So these issues can be solved by, by us if we cooperate. And that's what I see the role of the film as, is, is bringing a moderate voice, a moderating voice, mm. which is Robert Ireland's voice. And also, I mean, I don't want to take credit where it's not due, but if you look at the body of work that, that we've done through Peace Out, uh, Oil Sounds Karaoke, um, the Haida film, the Vancouver film, People have often remarked that the films take a really um, moderating point of view. For example, in the oil sands movie, you know, I have very strong feelings about the tar sands um, and whether they should have ever been developed. I, I don't believe that they should have been until they could have found an environmentally sustainable way of doing it. But at the same time, the film took the point of view that these people are real human beings with real needs and they're not monsters. They're not destroying the world one truck at a time. They're they're doing what they got to do to get through the day. And so how can we discuss this in a way that's positive without, you know, alienating and vilifying each other? And so that's what we, we tried to do. And that's, I think, going back to your earlier, earlier question, that was what really captured my imagination about Robert and Terry Lynn, is that's their point of view as well, is, is that you catch a lot more flies with honey than with vinegar. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for giving me yet another film that's going to stay with me. You know, I got to say, um, I think the f of all your films, one that ha has had the most impact on me ha ha was has been Vancouver No Fixed Address. Just really? because of living in Vancouver and constantly making the being like, is it worth it to live here? Like, you know, but then I hear uh, David Suzuki's voice from your film saying that staying put is a form of resistance. And I'm like, yes, Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm not going to run away. I have to stay and build the community that I want. For sure. And, you know, I look back over the entire body of work that I have over the course of a very long career. And I did mostly dramatic films before doing doc documentaries. Yeah. And every film that I had a key creative role in, which is to say writing, um, they all are centered in place. Mm. Place is always so, so important. It's in this film about Robert. It's in the oil sands. Certainly the Vancouver movie is that that's true. And when, when David Suzuki said that to us, I was so moved by it that that saying I will stay is such a powerful form of resist, resistance. You can't drive us out of here. This is where we are, all of us. Yeah. You know, We're not going to be driven off the land to live someplace so that the land can be destroyed and exploited without us knowing. Mm. We're here, so we'll see what you do. Yeah. Ugh. Thank you so much. Um, stay well and stay safe during this Same. incredibly surreal and strange time. My goodness, who would have thunk it, huh? <laughs> well, not me, because I was not prepared for this. And my little bedroom podcast studio is cobbled together with duct tape. Um, Charles, are you on social media at all? No, I'm afraid I'm... No, I'm not afraid. I, I'm willfully not. Okay. It's a long conversation. It's a long conversation. Yeah. Oh, but, oh, yeah. Your next film. Um, but if people want to find out more, if they want to watch the film, uh, where and when and how can they do so? The, the broadcast premiere is on uh, June the 2nd on Knowledge Network, the amazing Knowledge Network. I can't say enough good about those guys and the incredible programming that they do on uh, June 2nd at 9 o'clock. 9 p.m. And then from that moment on, it will also be available for free to stream all across the country. Fantastic. So there it is, knowledge.ca.
today I am delighted to welcome first-time guest, but long-time mainstay in the Vancouver film and TV community, Dan Rizzuto. Now, I've known Dan's name since the early aughts. He was a valued colleague and trusted friend of my dear friend, who I've spoken about numerous times on this podcast, the late, oh-so-great actor and stunt artist Darren Shalavi. Darren met Dan in the stunts realm because that's where Dan has spent thousands of hours crashing through windows and flying through the air and fighting off bad guys or being the bad guy being fought off and designing stunts on like all your favorite Vancouver shot shows from Van Helsing to Deadpool 2 to Legion to Batwoman to Supernatural to Continuum to... You get the picture. Dan is an in-demand stunt performer and stunt coordinator and has been for many years. But Dan is expanding into new territories, that of director and writer. And he pulls no punches in his feature film directorial debut, Torn Dark Bullets. The film hit Amazon Prime on April 24th, and it is relentless and difficult to watch in times and thought-provoking, which happen to be qualities I enjoy in a feature film. Torn Dark Bullets features some of our city's finest actors, including Sam Vincent, Karen Holness, William Big Sleep Stewart, Tammy Gillis, Jesse Hutch, and my dear friend and friend of the podcast, Sharon Taylor, tackling the very complex issue of police violence, brutality, and racism. It's an audacious debut and sure to spark a range of feelings in everyone who watches it. Mr. Dan Rizzuto, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. It's absolutely amazing to be here. Thank you so, so much. I mean, technically, you're not here, you're there. Um, <laughs> but one day, I do hope to share space, because I love sharing space with people who shared space with Darren. So uh, yes. you'll got, you're going to have to pop into the studio when it's... I mean, just, you know, pull back the curtain. We're recording during the pandemic. We have no idea, no idea when things are going to return to some semblance of normal. So congratulations so <laughs> on your film, which I did watch. And I think I bit down all my fingernails uh, while watching it. Um, tell me about the spark that began this torn dark bullets journey you know like what was the inspiration for this film well to be honest what really started the spark was a short story or a short film that sharon taylor had written Mm. um i've grown up with uh you know some just incredible people in my life and meeting some incredible people in this industry and Sharon and I wanted to do a short film together and I read what she had written and as I was reading it my mind was going in so many different places and so many different directions that it could go and I I said to her I said you know I want to make this topic into a feature film can I (laughs) and that's that's really what it sparked and you know, uh, Big Sleeps and Dexter and Dorn and all these guys I've grown up with for 20, 30 years. So 
it was just a natural integration. I've always wanted to do a big project with friends. Yeah. You know, I mean, I wanted to do something that, and, and to be honest, in stunts, which I love, but it's violent. It's all we're doing is putting negativity into the world. Hmm. Uh, you know, like we don't, there's no, there's no stunts on a Hallmark movie. There's no romantic stunts. It's shooting, violence, exploding, killing, running people over with cars, kicking them through windows, you know, and it's, you just hit a point where, okay, I just realize as much as I love the industry and the creation of it, I, I don't really, my first project, I don't want to put violence out into the world. I want to tackle an issue that is dear to my heart. That's, that's heavy and hard to speak about that creates always a debate, (laughs) no matter who you're talking to. And I really, really wanted to showcase Vancouver talent. I mean, I really wanted to do a film that was funded by Canadians, shot by Canadians, acted by Canadians. The, the score is done by a Canadian. Um, I just, I work a lot in the States. I work around the lot, uh, around the globe and I really get tired of hearing that. I understand that Canada and Vancouver is viewed upon as, you know, we're like a, we're not viewed as content creators. We're, we're viewed as yeah. service providers. And I get that. Okay, great. But that's 30 years ago. We can't say anymore. Every, you know, perfect example, UBCP with them, not a fan of them, but it's always acted like, you know, oh, we got to be grateful that shows are coming here. And I say, yeah, I get that 30 years ago. Time's done. We've proven ourselves as what we can do as a crew of what we can do as actors of what we can do as stunt performers. And why are we not creating our own content on a higher level? Hmm. You know, why are we putting out the, the goal with this was the number one thing was I didn't want it to look Canadian. You know, we can all flip through the channels and go, yep, that was shot in Canada. Yep. That just has a certain vibe and a look and a feel to it. And that's not who we are. We are an A-list I mean, I've worked globally and we are one of the strongest film communities I've ever worked with. Yeah. I mean, as your film shows, the acting talent is definitely here. You know, I mean, these are some very strong performances you got out of, you know, remarkable actors. And this is this was tough material as well. You know, it's not like you were acting, asking them to do anything um, that didn't require them to dig really deep. But I'm just, I'm curious, because you say, you know, that you're putting out violence. I mean, discussions around violence were huge in this film, right? Violence is part of this film. So can you tell me about how you kind of danced with that and why you chose to explore violence in the way that you did and the kind of the violence we enact on each other racially motivated as it is in this film? Well, I think the difference between, you know, performing stunts in an action movie is it's more just accepted. We just look at a guy get hit by a car and get shot and we're kind of numb to it now. It's like, oh, that's a normal thing. Yeah. And this was more a discussion of realistic, realistic circumstances that are happening that actually truly affect people's lives. I mean, 
I haven't seen a news story yet of, oh, a guy jumps off the building on a wire and flies through so-and-so window and runs through six people's apartments and kills another guy. Like, that's that's movie world. Movie violence, I wanted to yeah. touch something that's there that's realistic and affects people's lives that maybe a lot of people that haven't experienced racism would even know the lengths or depths of how people feel. And yeah. with this, we I didn't want to make it we really, really, really didn't want to make it one-sided. We didn't want to point fingers. We wanted both sides to have a voice, both sides to express how they feel. And, you know, the goal was to have each character really believe in what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And having it kind of turn into a a snowball effect or an awakening for, for Pierce, played by Sam Vincent, of more of a covert racism style, that where he truly believes he's not racist. Yeah. He's just called like it is. And by the end of it, I think he surprises himself of what's actually being said and what's coming out. And he comes to a realization where, wow, I I am racist. Yeah. What were some of the conversations you had with your cast, either before or during filming? You know, like, were you, I mean, because you have some black actors that are part of the cast, you know, like, were they, were, were they sharing their own stories? Were people exploring what, you know, their own biases, you know, that they might have been bringing into the project? I'm really interested about that, especially given the heaviness of the material. A hundred percent. And I mean, like I said, I've grown up with uh, Dexter and and Sleepy for, you know, 20 some plus years. Yeah. So I've I've seen racism. I've experienced it from my side. I can never experience it from their side. Mm. But I've been in the environment when things have happened around them. And so from an outside perspective, viewing it, not actually feeling it, I can never I can never really grasp what it's like to be in their shoes. But what I can say is that uh, racism to me is a white problem. Mm. You know, I, I was talking with someone the other day and someone had said to me, they said, well, are you nervous that you made a black film? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't really understand what you mean. They said, well, you made a black film. Like that's a, a you know, that should be made by a black storyteller. And I was like, I said, well, is racism a white problem or a black problem? Because hmm. I don't see it as a black problem. <laughs> I see it as a white problem. Hmm. And, you know, it kind of shut him down and, and put him in the place to, to really reevaluate his conversation, which is the whole point of the movie. Yeah. I'm not angry. I'm not pissed off. Everybody has a opinion or a view. But unless we've all been in their shoes, how how can we actually understand it? This this film was meant to be on screen. The film was meant to be a discussion. Yeah. That's why so much of it's in the house is, well, let's, we, we all know shootings happen. We all know that there's, you know, racially motivated shootings, but usually that's all we hear about it. Hmm. You see it in the meeting, another shooting done. It's gone. That's it. I wanted to do something that was like, what happens afterwards? Yeah. Um, what kind of discussions would you like audiences to have after they've watched the film? You know, in an in an ideal world, like what kind of questions would you like them to ask of themselves or or what kind of perspective switch would you like to happen within them? 
really just to the best of our abilities, can we please start putting ourselves in other people's shoes? Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're 6 billion people or 7 billion people now on a floating rock in the abyss of nothingness. And if we can't get along, <laughs> you <were> right. <laughs> it's like, so true. But like, if, if, if we can't get along now here on this planet with all of the knowledge and wisdom that we have, what's it going to take? Yeah. Like, we're doing things. This sounds weird, but I view humanity as we're just a bunch of cavemen. Hmm. We just created things to do, you know, while we're alive. But it means nothing. Nothing we really do means anything other than the energy, the emotion, thought, and perception that you put into it. Yeah. So, you know, we create these. I mean, I hear these FBI stories and these terrorist stories in real life, and I'm like, this is to me, it's happening, but it's this is ridiculous. Like we all breathe the same air. We all drink the same water. We all, this is one planet and we can't get along. And it's all with this, this, it's all human created. It's all Mm -hmm. perception. It's all nonsense. And you know, it's like when you're 20, what's the biggest thing in the world? Well, I got to look good because I'm going out Friday night and partying. Don't care about anything else. When you're 30, it's a different ball game. When you're 40, it's a different ball game. We need to start getting the 10, 15 and 20 year olds thinking like 40 year olds in the sense, let's just get together. Like, let's just realize what life actually, the the potential is. And it all, and that all stems from discussion. And the sooner we all start bluntly hitting hard topics and talking about them and bringing them out and not punishing people for their opinions, but helping guide and be guided to a better way of living it, it's to me it stems with storytelling yeah we've all been told stories ever since we were a kid yeah you know but they were they were make-believe stories disney you know don't lie or your nose is going to grow big don't do this and grow up like a princess and come on let's it's time now that we get into a little bit of harsh reality that really we're all dealing with now with a global shutdown so yeah so how did the experience of making torn dark bullets change you as a filmmaker? Uh, wow. I mean, I think I was really spoiled by the talent that I was around, <laughs> to be honest. And no word of a lie. Every day was, it, we were, we were doing up to 10 pages a day of dialogue. Like wow. they were incredible. And one thing that I really wanted to do that, you know, was a little bit of with, with, a discussion with everybody to make happen was I wanted to shoot chronologically, which in film, I've never been on a set that actually happens. Yeah. But, you know, with, with the emotion of it, I mean, they've got to dig deep. Once they were in the house part and they were digging deep and they're crying and the emo- like every scene is high, they're exhausted. They're, I just wanted to keep them in the exact same mindset they were to shoot it chronologically, which I really enjoyed. Um, I know it may have been a little bit tougher on them because yeah. there was just no, no break, but I wanted it to be really, I kind of wanted to wear everybody down. So it was natural and it was coming out and they, I mean, Karen, my God, I mean, she just, she can cry on cue. It's yeah. she's she blows me away. It's just, everybody had, everybody was perfect. Like nobody messed up anything. So I think really what I gained from that is, I'm going to have to be understanding and patient for future projects if I don't get such strong actors. Mm. Uh, 
because they, they've kind of set the the bar of just perfection in my mind. Like yeah. I, I had to check out halfway through filming, like after a couple days in the house, then you turn around to video village and see people in tears just from shooting it. I had to, I had to check out. I'm like, I can't even be objective here when I've got tears in my eyes yeah. and I'm thinking if they, if, if they created that much emotion on a set, I just want people to feel that much emotion while watching it and get there, there's subtle racism, there's covert racism, there's blunt racism, there's all within it. So some of the terms and words just go over people's heads. They don't even get it. It's yeah. more the surface stuff where other people really get the deep racism. Yeah. And that's kind of what what the goal is. And I don't know, I, I'm just so proud of everybody and just the Vancouver community in general, we really pull it together. Our DP, you know, we used cameras and lenses that there's no way in heck we could afford if we were paying full price for them. Yeah. And I wanted it. I'm a film lover, so I wanted it to be film. I want it to look like film. Look I don't like, like this, film, yeah. this, this really bright HD. I want it gritty and dark to follow the story. And, you know, it's uh, I just, I just can't praise the community enough. I mean, for us to pull that off in the time frame that we did with, you know, a small budget and it's I mean, it's just a testament to the Vancouver community. It really yeah. is. I was incredibly impressed with Sam Vincent's performance as well. Uh, I think because I in my mind, I've pigeonholed him as a voice actor. And so to see him one on screen, but two in this particular role. Can you tell me about the qualities that Sam Vincent brought to this incredibly demanding role? Oh, man. I mean, it's funny you say that because a lot of people have said that. They're like, oh, I just thought he was a voice actor. I was like, well, I hope it, I hope it changes <laughs> their minds because I think he had one of the most difficult roles because it changed. He, yeah. he was on a, a roller coaster that turned into a downhill snowball. And in a way, on set, it was almost like him against everybody else. Yeah, I bet. Like, you know, everybody, it's not like they were all hanging out and joking around and laughing. It was almost for a lot of the days, like an isolated kind of vibe because that's what it was. And, you know, to have five people in a house <laughs> to keep everybody mesmerized and, and going. And it, it's just a testament to their, their commitment. It's a testament to what he, the, the prep work he did. I mean, my God, it's, I knew how talented he was he just hit another level. Yeah. He just, I mean, if he's not getting bigger auditions and bigger shows after this, I, I don't know. Like it's, it's hard pressed for any actor to, to cry and be emotional and be natural at it on set. And he, yeah, I mean, he's, he's spectacular. He's amazing. He's well read. It's prepped. They didn't. And I say this honestly, rarely did they ever make a mistake honestly. And mm. you know, you know what it's like on set when you yell cut, everybody starts talking, crew comes in and then sometimes it can take five or 10 minutes to get going again. When we were doing five, six, seven page scenes, and I mean in a row, like just running through them, we wouldn't cut. We'd say, okay, great. Let's reset and go again. Like wow. sometimes we shot for like 15 or 20 minutes straight without cutting and they didn't mess up. Yeah, They just, they were just into it. And part, part of the reasoning for that was you know, when you see what it takes for them to get up, like a character like Sam, 
doing, you know, these big emotional roles that he's friends with these people. And some of the stuff he's saying is it's painful to say, even though it's just acting. Yeah. I don't want to, I didn't want to, to, to cut and let the natural vibes kind of come back in the room. I wanted them to stay in it because you could see take after take, it get a little bit exhausted, a little bit burned out. And yeah. that's, that's what we wanted. That's what we wanted to capture. <laughs> so, so what is what is what do you think this film tells us about the kind of films that you're going to make in the future? Ah, I mean, it's I'm, I, I can promise you this, and everything that I do coming up, whether it's an action or a drama or a thriller or a comedy, it's going to have some type of real story connection to what's happening in the world. Like I love action like nobody else. I mean, I've been doing it forever, but I do think, imagine an action film that didn't have just gratuitous action for the sake of action. Imagine an action film that had this level of acting with action set in proper space meant for a reason, not just let's just throw it in because it's in there. Yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing what you do next, Dan. This is a pretty fucking impressive debut. So um, I think I would like to end, though, with some time travel. Um, And it's, it's about advice. Like, if you could go back in time to the beginning of your career in film and TV and give some advice to the younger version of yourself what would you say i tell my guys the only difference between me and you is time yeah that's it if you were born the same time i was you'd be in the same place don't look at me like oh i can't wait i can't you will be you're 20 years younger than i am you will be just work for it and go for it and know you don't need anybody's permission to make yourself happy and by doing what you naturally are gifted and feeling you want to do whether it's right or wrong the real true support around your life and those people will appear and you'll know who you want to be around. Cause at the end of the day, we give in to concerns or thoughts of what other people may be thinking that are just completely and totally irrelevant. And usually it's bigger in our head. They think of something for four seconds and they're done. Nobody's at home thinking about you. That's great advice. Thank you so much, Dan. Where can our listeners find you and follow you on the social media? Uh, well, my Instagram, I believe, is Dan underscore Rizzuto. Okay. Uh, and I guess Facebook and yeah. Are you, You're not on the Twitter? Uh, rarely. Okay. And, <laughs> I have an account, but rarely. And a reminder to listeners that you can watch... Dan's film, Torn Dark Bullets, right now on Amazon Prime, which is how I watched it. And it's it's free free. for Canadians. Today, I am excited and delighted to welcome Jeremy LaRue to the YVR Screen Scene podcast. Jeremy is the writer and director behind Dominant Chord, which takes place in the world of country music. I'll admit I have some preconceived notions, you could even call them negative ideas, about country music. Country music is a billion dollar industry with millions upon millions of fans, 
But as a woman of color, I didn't think country music wanted me for a fan. Growing up in the 1980s and 1990s, I saw country music as a genre that required whiteness and values that didn't align with my own progressive ones. I'm not even sure what I'm basing this on. Maybe I internalized the complete lack of diversity in the few country music videos I did see. Maybe it was the backlash that Shania faced when she wore a crop top or the Dixie Chicks faced when they dared speak out against President Bush. Maybe it was that implied connection between country music and a certain kind of patriotic American, of which I am not, clearly. And after seeing the the recent debates around whether, whether little Nas X was allowed to call himself a country music star and the backlash that Shelley Wright faced after coming out as a lesbian, I'm not sure my longtime biases and preconceived ideas are too far off base. P.S. Addendum, I am not talking about Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton is and has always been her own thing. I stand Dolly Parton. <laughs> That's just for the record. And so I don't give country music too much thought, or at least I didn't, until Dominant Chord popped up on my radar. Jeremy's touching and emotional gut punch of a film deals with bigotry and homophobia in country music. It's about a closeted country music star on the verge of being outed and forced to make the choice between his career and the man, the super cute man he loves. It deals with very relevant topics, especially... Now, this is straight from the write-up I received. It deals with very relevant topics, especially in the close-minded world of country music. And I'm putting... I'm making sure to put that in quotation marks because I don't know about the closed-minded world of country music. Uh, I hope to find out more. So the film was made by a Vancouver cast and crew and stars Clayton James, also known as Clayton Chitty, Sean Pogue, and Caitlin Stryker. Dominant Court is scheduled to hit Amazon and Vimeo VOD this month, and I welcome the opportunity to speak with Jeremy about country music, about all the stuff that were in the quotation marks, and specifically the conversations that he would like to spark with his film. So, Jeremy LaRue, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you so much, Sabrina. It's great to be here. Okay. Uh... I want to talk about all the stuff that I said about my own preconceived notions and possibly negative ideas, unfairly negative, even possibly, I'm not even sure, about the country music realm. Like, talk to me about your relationship with country music. And if anything that I said in my intro was recognizable to you. It's all recognizable. I don't think that you are far off. Um, It is still and mystifying to me as the world has evolved, country music has not seemed Mm. to. And in some ways, it seemed to have gotten a pass. It's gotten a pass when it comes to equality, diversity and inclusion in a genre when other genres have been pushed 
And I think it's the other the artists and other uh, people in them uh, have helped push that. But the world's changed and country music is hung on almost to this uh, this this feeling of like almost proud to hang on to those things. Mm. Like it's it's kind of it's kind of weird. So for me, uh, 20 years ago, I was drawn to country music because of songwriting. Hmm. Um, the songwriting in country music was very much storytelling, which is what I feel that is what I am. Yeah. And whatever I do, I'm a storyteller. And so I was really drawn to that type of um, storytelling in the music. And, and, uh, and so that's where it started for me. But then... Um, when I was starting to put a demo uh, um, album together and I was starting to perform uh, pretty regularly, uh, I met my husband and also one of my idols, uh, rumors about him uh, being gay uh, came out and it kind of tanked his career. So 20 years ago, I saw it as not really a way to even, I didn't feel welcome. And so I walked away from it. So this is in some ways you're mining your own experience, your own pain then. Um, do you have regrets about walking away when you did? Uh, like, like tell, tell me about that aspect of your journey. Um, so when I, when I met my husband and I realized that it really was coming down to a having leading a double life. Yeah. And that honestly sounded exhausting. Like, uh, you know, it's hard enough to live one life. Let's just try to like <laughs> compartmentalize your life so that, and even then as a, as a gay man, I think even through acting and through different things that I do, you, you, you have naturally compartmentalized a lot of stuff yeah. because um, as other people um, and other films have kind of talked about coming out is it's like it never kind of ends or at least at this point in time it never kind of ends because you're always um, trusting to come out or to to be yourself around people that you hope that are going to treat you with respect and mm. and love and not, um, react negatively and have that impact you neg negatively. Yeah. Which I think with, with Dominant Chord, with the, the, one of the main themes is like, it's easy to point out in country music that um, people have had massive backlash for coming out and there is no um, little nasty exercise, which I think uh, he's a phenomenal marketer, but the rest of his album isn't country either. Mm. which makes it really easy for country music to go, oh, he's just like either a one-hit wonder or that was a one thing. And that that is... And so as far as changing the genre, I don't know that he was able to do that as much as, uh, um, you know, the, the, the premise of the film is like, it's going to take someone big to come out to make the massive change. Yeah. Um, and someone at the top of their game, not um, someone who comes out after the fact. Like it's the the amount of risk and the amount of, um, I guess, chutzpah or whatever you want that it will take for that person. Um, I think is is part of what will will change things because you do have 
uh, out gay artists now, like Brandon Stanzel, who did the song for our film. Mm. And, and he's going at it from a completely honest place of like, but he's having a struggle in the in the mainstream country world. And I think what a lot of people don't understand about country music is as much as ever, the rest of the world has kind of adopted streaming and everything else, country music is still very much regulated by if you can get get played on the radio. Radio play, right. I remember that uh, there was a recent discussion about how women artists weren't getting enough radio play in the country music genre. And as a result, their careers were being stalled and dismissed. Yeah, I mean, women currently, I think the numbers might be going slightly up, but it's 10% of radio play is by female artists. <laughs> oh, come on. So you have, so all of your feelings about country music and why people, you know, uh, I think there's gay closet country music listeners because they don't really want to be associated with it because they don't even it's almost like a guilty pleasure because it's not something that feels super welcoming yeah right it isn't until you start branching out and finding that there actually is a, a queer community in country music which i didn't even know about until i started researching for um trying to find an audience for the film hmm. and i found a um a wonderful uh, queer community uh, of country music that one of the other things that country music has a problem with is the sound of country music and if it gets too pop and all the rest of it. Mm. And you literally have this group of artists that are making kind of more of a traditionally sounding country music, and but they're being excluded because of the fact of what their stories are. So, wow. I, I, music, yeah. I'm curious about why you wanted to make this film then. Was this about sparking conversation? Like what 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 motivated you to revisit, you know, this part of of your past and an industry that in so many ways seems kind of unwilling to change, you know, despite the you know the this artist here the small group there um because on a whole i think it's unfair for lgbtq kids to be growing up thinking that some areas of life are just closed to them some opportunities they're not uh available to them and yeah. i think reaching in film has a really uh strong potential to show people something and make them feel something. Mm. So they can watch something and they can gut feel something that's not fair with the situation. Whether they, you know, would have thought that they would be even open that to that or not. It's just there's something that uh, film can do and it can open hearts and minds. And I thought as a filmmaker, that's what I want to do. And yeah, this story is so personal and I got pissed off that's what happened mm. is I looked at it 20 years later or 15 years later whenever I started the ideas started popping in my head and I got pissed off I'm like I was dealing with this 20 years ago why are we still here yeah um uh, in 2014 the show Nashville came on 
uh, television. And then they had the Will storyline with him being gay and coming out and it destroying his career. Mm. <laughs> so it really didn't show a hopeful side to anything. And, yeah. and I don't know that we're quite there, but that was 2014 and people were still questioning, well... I don't know what the reality would be like if somebody would would come up, would come out and, and stuff like that. And we're still talking about it in 2020, although country music has a really short attention span. Yeah. So women are starting to talk about it again. But they went through this years ago with Tomato Gate, where they were basically told they were the tomatoes on the salad. No, I'm <sighs> that I, I know it's everything about it is. <sighs> Can I say a couple of things that I really I loved and appreciated about your film? Um, the I won't give too many spoilers away. Um, although if you're listening and you want to skip any spoilers, just hit that like f- forward 15 seconds button. I love that you said it in the aftermath of the hate crime. We don't like it's we see it, but it doesn't take place in that. It's two loving men in their home the day after. And I also found it really a little jarring that the representative from the record company who comes, you know, and says what she has to say, gives her point of view about how to deal with the the footage of of the hate crime was a woman of color. You know, that I found that to be a very interesting, provocative choice as well. You know, how a lot we become complicit, you know, to these larger machineries, you know, just to keep thing, the status quo going, you know, and not rock the boat. And yeah, so those were the two things that I mean, besides the tears that I was having uh, and all the emotions I was feeling, I'm like, oh, that is, these are such really smart choices that that you're making so well thank you um yeah the i it was important to me to bring in um as much of a a shift in diversity as possible um because i want to show what could in some ways can be possible um Mm. You know, the from this the a feature film is is uh, being developed. I've I've written the script for it, um, and it really delves much more into all of the inequalities in country music. Mm. I mean, we had to focus, you know, where we had to focus for a short film in in such a short period of time. But I mean, you can't talk about uh, inclusion. Um, without talking about the lack of diversity and mm-hmm. the lack of equality in country music. Yeah. Because, in my opinion, if LGBTQ people are going to have any shot at it, then the representation from uh, female artists and specifically um, female artists of color have to um, be brought up in, yeah. in the uh, thing. And, I mean, p- the interesting thing about the 10% is that that means that there's 90% straight white male, and I'm doing the air quotes in, oh, right. right now, because, straight, yeah. yeah, and and so this idea that there are zero gay country artists, which is kind of how they would like, country music would like you to think they don't exist. Mm. 
And so that's where I think the, the representation needs to be there because you have these communities, these rural communities who don't have the representation. And so they, they don't, they grow up thinking that there's something wrong with them just because there's nobody in their community that they can, you know, that, that can stand up. And I mean, yeah. you know, Ty Hernan's done a wonderful job since he's come out and he's really been about um, spreading the, the love and acceptance and, and the visibility of it. But, you know, we, in the community, in the country community, there needs to be more. Yeah. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced bringing this to the screen? Um, I'm assuming you might have had one or two challenges. <laughs> Every artistic journey has some challenges, right? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, f- funding aside, you, you would try to go through all of the different local um, avenues for, for getting funding and, and realizing that... Um, uh, I don't think many people talk about this, but LGBTQ don't hit the diversity story um, like the unless you're they don't fit the visible diverse part of it. And so mm. it's hard for LGBTQ people who aren't people of color to get funded, which hmm. is because they LGBTQ people aren't included in in many of the lists. They're not included just by being LGBTQ. And so it's difficult, um, you know, as as a very, uh, very white <laughs> guy that I am um, to was when I was pushing this. And that's the, frustrating, I, especially when it's a story that we haven't seen on screen before, you know, like that. I, I could see you banging your head against the wall a little bit along the way. Yeah, it. I mean, that's and it's just a. I mean, I appreciate and uh, the local filmmakers who have. I mean, uh, Miyumi Yoshida with Akashi was one of the people who, um, and Michelle Muldoon with Last Stand in Nowhere. Mm-hmm. They were two of the people that basically, despite whatever was, you know, the the obstacles they had, and they had these stories to tell. They really inspired me to go out and tell my tell my story because wow. I, it, it is that it is that personal and we have a wonderful local community here yes, so regardless of the, the the funding trouble and stuff like that i mean we we did a, a an indiegogo campaign after trying to get all the funding because by that time we'd already kind of committed to making the movie yeah like it's one of those things where you're just like well we've got all of this marketing stuff we've got all of this ideas and we've got everything so let's make it. And yeah. so that's kind of where we, we went with it. And, uh, and uh, yeah, no, I, I really draw a lot of um, inspiration from a lot of the, um, the people in the indie film community in Vancouver who have really just gone in and made it. And they've, you know, they've, they've done it. Uh, Joel Ashton McCarthy, uh, Mayumi Shida, and, uh, and Michelle Muldoon with A Man, what she's accomplished with. Oh, the- yeah. All friends of the podcast all have appeared on the podcast. (laughs) People can go back and actually I'll put links to their episodes uh, in the footnotes for this episode. Um, I know that you I mean, so the film has traveled a bit, correct? Yes. Yeah. So we we've been to six six film festivals. Um, 
we started at the Chicago Reeling Film Festival, yeah. which was a huge, big deal to um, premiere at that. And uh, and we ended our run at the Las Cruces Film Festival. Yeah, um, you where was, Michelle was as well. Michelle was yeah. with me as well. Yeah. <laughs> you guys yeah, had incredible social media photos standing in like like the desert, like a beautiful landscape where I'm sure you both were like, I want to make a film here. Yes. Yeah, but what, it was incredible. You, so, you know, taking this film through America then, mm-hmm. uh, what kind of reaction did you get? Did you encounter any pushback? No. Um, that shocks me. It, yeah, we didn't. We we didn't. I mean, I think what I was shocked about was some of the places, like even within the LGBTQ community, the festivals we didn't get into that I thought we were going to. Like I really mm. headed for a lot of rural kind of communities. And some when I got, uh, when we didn't get into some of these ones that I was like, but this is what I'm making. I'm making this for you. Yeah. Like, that was part of it. Um, hmm. So there, there, that was some disappointment in that. But I mean, the last festival, the Las Cruces Film Festival, man, that is a fantastic film festival. And no, it was so well received um and we had this group of um high school students from centennial high that came to the screening there was a whole group of them and they were asking all these questions at the q a and afterwards um you know after the screening i was talking to them in the hall afterwards and stuff like that too and it was just no it was that was for sure probably the highlight of of everything for me was being able to to talk about that and then also to ask is this still important to you right Mm. because it's one thing for me to be coming in and being like okay i made this film and i think it's it's still valid and important and relevant but are you you know the people that i'm trying to reach are is this relevant to you or important to you and they all were resounding yes so Mm. i was i was really really heartened by that um, and I guess we haven't, because it's been somewhat of a limited thing thus far, I guess we, ha- I guess we'll see if there's some, some backlash from the community as we put it out wider and yeah. see what happens as we, you know, release it, um, more to the public because with film festivals, you get as many people as you can, but yeah. it's very limited. Well, I was even thinking, though, about Michelle's experience taking her, you know, her all-female Western to different festivals and then having people come up to her. Some so deeply moved to see the story of the OK, OK Corral told with with women. And then some people who were just, just like, aghast, like, like, they could not believe her audacity that she dared to do that, you know? And so I was, I was expecting you to have a similar reaction, but I guess part of the thing too, is you need to get the people who need to see the film and experience those emotions into the seats to see the film in the first place. Right. So yeah, hopefully they will find it on the VOD. So Let's end then with the conversations that you want to inspire with this film. You know, like what what do you want people to 
carry with them, you know, especially people who love country music. I want the tent to get bigger in country music. I think this propensity has been almost to make this a more small, exclusive tent Mm. where it actually excludes people from being part of it. And I don't know if it actually is true. See, because you have gatekeepers that are potentially keeping this stuff away from fans and for people like on whole, I think society is moving in a much more tolerant uh, place overall. I think we're definitely hitting some hiccups and, and some pushback and stuff like that that's happening right now. But I think overall that's what's happening. And so country music has the opportunity to really widen its fan base yeah. and to let everybody come in and feel welcome. And, you know, with country music, it's about three chords in the truth. But whose truth is allowed to be there and mm. and if we keep telling people, you know, if only certain people are allowed to be part of it, I mean, um, you'd probably love, um, I, I don't know if you've heard of her, Mickey Guyton. No. I... She's, a, she's a, a woman of color country uh, music, and she has a beautiful song called uh, Tell Her, and it's uh, about the reality of what's happening in country music and in music. And it's like, you're going to, you, you're telling this person, you know, when they're a little girl, anything's possible and all the rest of it. And so what are you going to tell her when then she smacks up to reality and this is the world that you've created for her. I think you would love it. Um, I will seek it out. And I will also put, a link to that in the footnotes for our episode. Actually, I had said that was my last question. I actually do have another one. We keep talking about country music um, as if it's this big, you know, monolith. But are there differences between, you know, American country music and Canadian country music? Like... Like are and if they do exist, you know what are they? Because I like to think we're a little bit more progressive. Uh, you know, <laughs> the well, I mean, we have can con content. You know, so there's always the promotion of um, local um, country artists through Canada and stuff like that. So we do have um, some artists, but it all kind of goes through this Nashville frame and this Nashville window. So even the artists that we get up here are actually, I get played on the radio. We hear more um, American artists than that. I think Mm -hmm. where the big split is, is Americana. So if if you want to get into like, and what that is, is that's like almost like if you're, gay you can kind of belong in americana if you're uh, a person of color you can kind of and it's it's funny because it's actually a lot of country music listeners would think that the sound of americana is actually more in line with what they like hmm. it's just the they've they've segmented it so yeah because that doesn't get to be country it doesn't get to be country country it's country, americana country. it's its own thing and so that's and that's where this whole, you know, the argument in country is about, you know, sound and, and if things are too pop. But 
there's a a double standard when it comes to uh, men and women in country music where men can go and try different experimental things and do, um, you know, duets with uh, uh, hip hop stars and stuff like that. And that's like praised. And then yeah. when a woman goes and explores artistically, then it gets hit down. And then it's like, oh, well, no, that's the reason women aren't on country radio. Like they find any reason to uh, to block it. So uh, your apprehension and kind of, you know, all the things you were talking about at the beginning, yeah. they're very valid. And I think, but if we just let it happen like that and nobody says anything about it, it will continue ad nauseum because it, you know, was happening 20 years ago. And actually at that point, the women in country were some of the best artists um, with Faith Hill and Shania Twain and the oh, Dixie yeah, Chicks. Faith and Faith Hill. Like, like these are and, and uh, so many powerful, awesome women singers. And then the 2000s happened and it kind of happened at the same time that I walked away. But you had the rise of bro country mm. where everything was like my truck and this and that. And and it and now I guess the push is towards, you know, opening things up. I mean, if we're going to be positive. There are two female artists back to back on country uh, on the country charts right now that just had the number ones, which hasn't happened in I don't I someone's got the stats for it, but it's probably 10 to 20 years before that has actually happened. Yeah. OK, I know I kept I kept saying that I this is the last question and this is the last <laughs> question, but this is actually the last question. All right. What do you think? You, 20 years ago, when you were in, still in the country music biz, what do you think your reaction would have been to Dominant Chord? If you saw it during it, during that time? I think it might have pushed me to try, I Mm. think. I think that's what I think the the difference is, is if I would have had because if you see any kind of representation, it just gives you that little bit of something that makes you think like, yeah, why the hell can't I? Why shouldn't I be able to do that? And and then it's almost like you have something to be like, well, see, it's it's happening. It's not in my it's not in my imagination that because 20 years ago, arguably, uh, for the LGBTQ community, it didn't exist in country music. Like mm. it, it wasn't even in uh, a thought of people. It, you know, the it because Shelley Wright didn't come out until 2010. Yeah. So, and she was the first major artist to do it, and she paid a massive price to do it. Yeah, um, she did, didn't she? Um. I have one more question. No, I don't. I don't. I'm done. Okay, so what can you give my listeners the 411 on where they can find Dominant Chord? Where and when they can find Dominant Chord? All right, so we, uh, Dominant Chord gets released on May 20th uh, to the streaming service Deku, and at the same time, we're putting it up on uh, Amazon 
um, for uh, Video On Demand and Vimeo, Vimeo On Demand. Uh, Vimeo is probably going to have the most as far as it'll have the most different types of captions and languages because we actually have it in Spanish, French, um, and English closed captioning and stuff. So um, for different uh, viewers, that might be the place to find it. Um, Amazon has its own thing, and apparently they're running behind, so I'm hoping it's going to be on Amazon on the 20th. <laughs> but if not, we're going to be pushing Vimeo on demand, because yeah. that's how you'll be able to uh, watch it. And then the streaming service Deku, which is uh, is a, is a, a gay streaming service, um, they do uh, specifically uh, gay content. and so Fantastic. Well. Where can people find you and follow you on the social media? On the social media, so we are at Facebook and Instagram at Dominant Chord Film. And on Twitter, because you can't have that many letters, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> at Dom Chord Film. So, uh, and me personally is uh, Jeremy B. LaRue. Uh, at, that's me at everywhere. So. At everywhere. At Good. Every- <laughs> Some people come in, they got something a little different, and they can't even remember. It's frustrating. All yeah, right. We also, we also have the I I have to say we also have the website dominantcordfilm.com. So, we have everything linked up there. So, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for spending this time with me today. Oh, thank you. Um, and I will also thank our listeners. Thank you, listeners. I have many new episodes of the Waviar Screen Scene podcast in the can. I will continue to release new content twice a week. This in addition to the more than 80 episodes we've already released in the last year. We've got you covered during these surreal times let's go with surreal times and we'll also continue recording episodes over skype indefinitely keep in touch on social media at yvr screen scene and that's yvr screen scene all across the social media channels and drop me an email if you want i'm at sabrina at you're not alone we're going to get through this thank you for listening This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North, before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com.